If you got your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then also John, chapter 14, this morning. Uh, be reading a good bit, but uh, if it's a bad message, well, at least we can say we heard the word this morning, okay? And so um, we're going to start this morning in the, the book of Acts, chapter 1. Today is what the Jewish calendar is known as Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost, what does that mean? Pentecost, Greek, 50. It falls 50 days after Passover, 50 days after the resurrection. So you can go back seven weeks when we had Easter. Okay? And so that is, now we move to the Feast of Pentecost. Now, let's talk about this for a second because after Jesus had risen from the dead, the Bible says that Jesus presented himself alive by many convincing proofs. In other words, he wanted his disciples to understand that what they were experiencing was not, a, not an illusion. It wasn't a dream. He was really alive. Okay? And so he appeared to them numerous times to say, listen, you can take it to the bank. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the Messiah. And so we pick up the story in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, and look what he says here. And this is 40 days after Jesus has risen from the dead. Okay? It says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard of me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Skip down to verse 8. Why? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So this is 40 days after his resurrection. He tells them to go to Jerusalem. Wait. Ten days later, you math whizzes out there, 40 plus 10, 50. Right? Pentecost, 50. We see this, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them the utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now in my study this week I discovered something new. The Galileans, we're going to fix it on just this little side note here. The Galileans had a distinct dialect that at times was hard to understand. 
Okay? You ever been to Camden, Alabama? I'm joking. That's where our governor's from, right? Very hard to understand sometimes what they're saying. Okay? As a matter of fact, when Peter was warming himself by the fire, you know what gave him away? Gave himself away as being a disciple of Jesus? Servant girl said, you're a Galilean. You know, if it, how, it never fails when, if you ever go somewhere like me and my wife, we went to Los Angeles a few weeks ago with the kids, it never fails that once we get out there, somebody's going to say, where are you from? <laughs> You're not from around here, right? And so, this is what these people are saying. These guys are Galileans. How is it, because this is a miracle here, verse 8, how is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. They all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, when you think about what has taken place here in Acts 2, it's really the reversal of the Tower of Babel. This is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Because... In the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, God confused the languages and scattered the people. But at Pentecost, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome. And it was a sign to the nations that they would be brought together through Jesus Christ. Now listen, we hear a lot in our world today about reconciliation. Especially in the last two years, we've heard the term racial reconciliation, right? But I'm going to tell you something this morning. There is no man-made thing that will ever bring people together. The only way people are reconciled is through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ, Paul says to the church at Ephesus that Jesus Christ broke down the wall between Jews and Gentiles and now because of what Jesus Christ has done, we can all be one in Christ. Okay? That's just a side note. But this morning, I want to look at verse 12 and I want to concentrate on this question this morning that the crowd asked. They asked this question what does this mean? What does this mean? And let me say it up front. We can spend a lifetime plumbing the depths of why this event in Acts chapter 2 was vitally important. You can only skim the surface. But I want to look back about 51 days prior to this in John chapter 14 and see the significance of what happened in Acts 2. In John chapter 14, let's pick up verse 1 here. 
Look what the Bible says. And remember, Jesus is about to go to the cross, and so he's about to go to the cross, and so because he's about to go to the cross, he wants to emphasize the importance of the coming of the Holy Spirit that we just read about in Acts chapter 2. And here's what he says to them. He says, first and foremost, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you so. For I am going away to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, why would the disciples be troubled? It's because Jesus had just dropped a bombshell on them. He had just told them that he was about to leave them, that he was about to go away, and this was the worst-case scenario for those disciples. What are we going to do? They had walked with Jesus for three and a half years. They, Jesus had taught them. Jesus had fed them. Jesus had took care of them. He had protected them. And now he's telling them, I am going to leave you. And they were shocked. They were they, 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 they were astonished. They could not believe what they were hearing. And then Jesus tells them this in verse 16 of John 14. He said, I will ask the Father that he will give you, and I love how the NASB puts it, he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so Jesus tells them, I'm about to leave you, but guess what? I'm going to send you a helper. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan, which we know what an orphan is. An orphan is someone that does not have a parent. It is someone that is fatherless. It is someone that is on their own. And Jesus says, even though I'm about to leave, I'm going to send you someone. And that word another, King James probably says comforter. Allos means one that is just like me. It's not a substitute for Jesus. It is just like Jesus. And so Jesus is telling those guys, listen, I'm going away, but guess what? I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you someone that is just like me, a comforter, a paraclete. We know that Greek word paraclete, right? You've been in a church, a Pentecostal church. You've heard this term over and over again. That word paraclete, para means someone that is close, someone that is very near. And that word kalit can mean different things. I want to look at that this morning. How does he our helper? How does the comforter? What does it mean to us in 2022 of what happened in Acts 2 and 4? What does it mean? 
The first thing is this. I'm going to use a words that start with the letter A. Is the Holy Spirit as our helper. That word paraclete means this. He is our advocate. Okay? He is our advocate. Now, what is an advocate? An advocate is simply this. When you boil it all down to is this. He is a divine defense attorney. He is your defense attorney. Have you ever watched 2020? You ever watched Dateline? You ever watched these, uh, these murder stories? And they always interviewed both sets of lawyers. I have never one time in, my all, in all my life of watching these shows seen them interview a defense attorney. And the defense attorney says this. You know, you're right. That person is a scoundrel. Yeah, they're sorry. Put them under the jail. Every single time, they're always saying, my client's not guilty. Because if he's a good defense attorney, he's going to do everything he can to help you and to get you off. That's what he's going to do. So why do we, as Christians, need an advocate? It's because this. There is something that is going on right now in the throne room of heaven. And we see this in Zechariah, and I don't have the scripture up there, but just let me tell you what it says in Zechariah chapter 3. In Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah sees a vision there, and there is Joshua the high priest. Now don't confuse this with Joshua in the, in the book of Joshua, but he's Joshua the high priest. And he is standing before the throne of God. And the Bible says in Zechariah that there in that throne room, is also Satan, the accuser of the brethren. And what Satan is doing is, he is constantly bringing up accusations against Joshua the high priest about saying he's dirty, he's unworthy, he's never going to, how can, how, how can you call him righteous? And Joshua the high priest knows he can't say anything because if he's, being, if he's honest, this is probably the only, the only time that Satan is actually telling the truth. He's not worthy. His garments are dirty. But as Satan is bringing accusation after accusation after accusation against Joshua the high priest, God says, that's enough. I've heard enough. And what God says in Zechariah chapter 3 is this, I reject your accusations. Because he takes Joshua, the high priest, who is clothed in dirty garments, and he says, remove those dirty garments, and he clothes him in righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what I'm saying is this, yes, if, if I stood before the Father on my own, I got dirty garments. But praise be unto God that when he saved my soul, he clothed me in the righteous garments of Jesus Christ and I stand holy and acceptable for God because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And even though Satan may accuse me, I got a divine defense attorney that is making intercession for me Every day of my life. 
Do you realize the Bible says in Romans 8 and 1 that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. I'm here to tell you the devil's a liar and let me tell you something. We got somebody, an advocate that is on our side, that is pleading our case, that is pleading our cause, that is for us. He's not against us. I'm here to tell you what Pentecost, what happened at Pentecost means today that I have a divine defense attorney that is right now in the throne room of God. He's praying for me. He's defending me. He's backing me up. He's encouraging me and that's good news. But not only is he my advocate, he's also my assistant. He's also my assistant. The NASB calls him the helper. Your version may say comforter. He's my assistant. A few teachers in here. Y'all ever had a teacher's aide? What do they do? They run copies for you? Don't, don't start shrinking underneath the pulpit. I mean, underneath the pew. I'm just asking a question. They don't do everything for you, do they? You'd like for them to. But they're there to assist you. And what I'm saying is this. The Holy Spirit of God is not going to do everything for you. He's not going to do it all for you. You still got to pray. You still got to read your Bible. You st I still got to study. You know what? When I went home, when I went to bed last night, I didn't just put this Bible underneath my pillow and say, maybe I'll have something in the morning. And I know there's times when I get behind here, you may think I did that. But believe it or not, I actually study. Okay? I don't go to church and start while I'm driving on the road trying to find, okay, i got to find something here. No. He's got to do everything for you. There's things you still got to do yourself. But he is going to help you. He is going to assist you. And you know what? Not only does he help you in life, he also helps you in life's battles. You know that word helper, paraclete, also means a battle partner in the Greeks? See, in the Greeks, when they would fight hand-to-hand -hand combat, they wouldn't fight by themselves. They would have a battle partner, what was called a paraclete. It would be somebody that would stand back-to-back. -back. And in that battle, that paraclete was someone that always had the other person's and I'm here to tell you that when you're fighting battles today, if you're fighting a family battle, don't ever tell yourself you're fighting this alone. If you're fighting a battle with your children, don't ever say, I'm fighting this alone. If you're fighting a spiritual battle, don't ever say you're fighting a spiritual battle alone because the Holy Spirit of God is your battle partner and he has never lost a battle. And the only way you're going to go down in defeat is if you quit. Only way. That word battle partner also means a wingman. Now, you guys that were probably in the 40s or 50s, maybe 60s, y'all been to see a movie the last couple of weeks. Top Gun, Maverick. When I was 14 years old, that came out, and man, we thought we were Top Guns, right? And what, is they, what do they have in that movie? You got what you call a wingman. What does that wingman do? He protects you. And do you realize the Holy Spirit of God was sent 
to assist us and protect us in our life's battles, that's good news, that he is our assistant every single day. And so he's our advocate, he's our assistant, he's also our ability. He's also our ability. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God, he enables me to do what I can't do on my own. Have you ever said to yourself just this week, I'm not adequate for the task? Sure we have. God knows you're not adequate. God knows you're not adequate. God knows you can't do it by yourself. But thanks be to God, he has given us a helper, our ability to help us do what is impossible. An illustration, if you go back to Zechariah. In Zechariah, Zerubbabel there is given the task to rebuild the temple. And as they begin to rebuild the temple, they get the foundation laid. And the Bible says in Ezra 3 and 4, I think it is, this is the reaction when they get just a foundation laid. 3 and 12 says, But many of the priests and Levites and the chief of the fathers who were ancient men, they had seen the first house. And when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. And so it looks like the temple is going to come on back up. But all of a sudden opposition arose from the local non-Jewish population and the building stopped for years. And now the people are discouraged. Their resources are few. The people don't have the interest to finish the temple. And Zerubbabel did not think he had the ability to accomplish this task. He didn't see himself adequate for the job. But Zechariah gives him a message from God in Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6. He says this, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, It is not by might. It is nor by power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel, you can't do this on your own strength. You can't do this with your own resources. It's only going to be accomplished by my spirit. And we got to realize in this day we are living in, because God the Father sent the Holy Spirit, we have an advocate with us. We have an assistant there to help us. He is our ability to do the impossible. So my question is this, how long will he be my advocate? How long will he be my assistant? How long will he be my ability to do what I need to do? John 14, look what he says there, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper 
that he may abide with you forever. Now, you may not like that term forever. It may throw a little chink in your armor. But I like when Jesus says he will stay with you. He will remain with you forever. Jesus could not stay in that present form like that. And so he was leaving them, but he said, you know what? I'm going to send you someone. It's not something, not a ball of force, not a ball of... It's someone that is far better than what I have been for you to accomplish what you need to accomplish. Because you got to realize this. When Jesus was on this earth, he could only be one place at one time. But now, as one preacher once put it, we know that God is for us. We know that Jesus is Emmanuel with us. But the Holy Spirit is God in us. You can't get closer than intimate to being in somebody. You cannot get any closer to someone than living on the inside of them. And so he says, he will be with you forever. He will be with you in good times and in bad times. He'll be with you on the mountain. He'll be with you in the valley. He'll be with you in the birthing room. He'll be with you in the funeral home. He will be with you forever. So what do we need to do? A couple things. First thing is this. We must recognize him. Okay, we must recognize him. Do you realize that most of us have an old covenant mindset when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit? We got an old covenant mindset. And it is partly because of the songs we have sung. Now, I love some of these songs, but I don't think they're biblical, okay? For instance, I love the song. We'll sing a song like this, Come Holy Spirit, I need you. Come Holy Spirit, I pray. Come Holy Spirit, in strength and power, come in your own special way. So what that song is telling me is that he is somewhere else and not inside me. Right? And this is the problem. We will come to church and say, let's welcome the Holy Spirit like he's not already here. See, God's everywhere. And you're not inviting him into your presence. You're coming into his presence. And we think a preacher's going to bring it. An evangelist's going to bring him. No. If you're a child of God, Jesus said, I'm going to send you another helper that he may abide with you for." And listen, another reason why we don't understand and we got an old covenant mindset, we'll take a scripture like 
Psalms 51 and 11, where David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And so he prays this prayer in Psalms 51 and 11. He says, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Okay? You need to understand something. David was living under the old covenant. Okay? Under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody and he would fill them, he would anoint them for a specific time, a specific place, a specific job. And then after that was over with, he'd leave. You read about Belial in the Old Testament. How that God filled him with the Spirit so that he could make things for the temple. He could only make them because the Holy Spirit of God was just filling him and just caused him to do things that was humanly impossible. But once that job was over with, the Holy Spirit would leave that person. You see it in the life of Saul. Even when Saul was in rebellion, there was a time that Saul was going around and all of a sudden the Spirit filled him again and he began to prophesy. And after that was over with, the Spirit left. Do you realize that even Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 95% of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even though it's in your New Testament, it's really Old Covenant. It's Old Covenant. That's the reason why when Jesus would heal somebody, he would say, Go show yourself to the priest because they were still under the old covenant. When does the new covenant begin? It begins the moment Jesus sheds his blood on the cross. What happens is the veil is torn from top to bottom, right? And remember what he says in communion. This is my blood. This is the new covenant for you. The new covenant begins the moment that Jesus dies on the cross. And when he dies on the cross and goes back to the Father... He says, I'm going to send you someone. It's not going to be like the old way. He's going to abide with you forever. How does it make the Holy Spirit of God feel when we come into this house and our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we just simply say, I wish he was, would have been here today. Oh, he's here. You may not recognize him. You may not acknowledge him. But he's here because I brought him. And I don't care who is behind this pulpit. If me as a Christian comes in this house, don't you ever say the spirit wasn't there today. That's almost blasphemy when you say something like that. Mm-hmm. Because you're ignoring his very presence in our lives. And so we got to recognize him. Remember, what he, look what he says here. In 1 Corinthians 6 and 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Do you not realize that? You've heard people say this a lot. Don't say that you're in church. Well, let me tell you something, saint. Wherever you go, you're in church. And you can't, listen, 
There ain't, I, I understand we need to respect this house, absolutely. But let me tell you something. If you act a fool at the ball game, you're in church. Yeah, we want to compartmentalize everything, right? Think we just leave it over here and we go out and do, no. Would you join your body to a prostitute? Would you join the Lord Jesus Christ to a prostitute? That's what you're doing when you live a life of sin or living in unconfessed sin. Look what John, 1 John 2.27 says this. John says, as for the anointing which you receive from him, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him, it abides in you. Understand that. If you're a child of God, the anointing abides in you. And you may say, what is the anointing? Let me tell you what the anointing is. I got scripture to back it up. Acts 10, 38. Peter says this. Jesus, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. What is the anointing? It's the Holy Spirit. What did John say? The anointing which you have received, it abides in you. It's there in you. Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. In Acts, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 and 19. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe these are in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might. Then he say in chapter 3, verse 20, Now unto him who is able to do abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power, dunamis, that works within us. It's the power that works within us. You may not recognize it. You may not even realize it, but it's there. It's like this, and I tell the story all the time, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna tr I'll try to get some different uh, illustrations. But if you go by, if you're an older person and, you, and you're not, um, how do we call that, tech savvy, and you go buy a new car, it's going to have stuff on there you ain't got a clue that's on there. But you ask your three-year-old grand grandchild, they'll show you everything that's on there. Now listen, and I'm going to talk to these guys over here this time, right now, okay? Just because you didn't know it was on there does not make it not on there. Just because you don't acknowledge that you've got a, a remote start doesn't mean you don't have a remote start. Now, you may never use it, but it's there. And what I'm saying is this. There's a lot of Christians that are living far below their privileges because they don't get into God's Word. They don't find out who they are. They don't find out what they possess. His divine power, 2 Peter says like this, His divine, and I only have it up there, just, just bear with me. His divine power has given us 
everything we need to live a godly life. Now, either that's the truth and it's in God's Word, or it's not. And you just a pauper, just struggling to get by. You can't make it because God is, he has, let me put it like this, God has held out some things on you. He only gave you 50%. And he said, now run along. See what you can do. No. His divine power has given me everything I need to live a godly life. It's there. I just simply got to recognize it. The second thing is this. Not only must you recognize it, but you've got to rely on it. Rely on him. See, living a holy life is not natural. It is supernatural. You can't do it on your own. You've got to rely on him. You cannot do this on your own. There's a reason why Paul would say in Galatians chapter 5, This I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of your flesh. See, you can't defeat the desires of your flesh by your willpower. You can't even, and we all, Paul would call it religious asceticism. Y'all know what that is? You know what that is? Read Colossians where these people said, if I could just beat my flesh enough, if I could starve myself enough, I'd get, I, I, I can get victory. He says you can't do it. You can't, you can't starve yourself enough to overcome this. You can't will yourself enough to live like you're supposed to live. Can we just, if you don't mind, put the, let's continue this verse. Go to 17 now. He says this. I didn't do this in first verse. I'm going to do this right here. For the flesh sets a desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are in opposition one to another, so that you may not do the things you please. Then he says this, verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, in other words, feel the spirit, walk in the spirit, he says you're not under the law. In other words, it doesn't mean you live lawless, it just simply means this, that you can live the way God wants you to live, okay? And he says the deeds of the flesh are evident, they're clearly evident, which is immorality. Okay, when you're living in the flesh, you're going to practice immorality. He says, not only that, impurity, which is just dirty thoughts. Sensuality, which is just lasciviousness, always wanting more, always wanting more. He says next, idolatry. In other words, when you are walking in the flesh, you're going to put God, you're going to try to put God second and third, and you'll begin to... Now, I know y'all don't have idols as far as just a, like a statue out in your yard, but you, let me tell you something. You can be in idolatry without having an idol in your yard. Idolatry is when you put anything before God. Whether it's a job, whether it's a dream, whether it's a career, anything before God, that's idolatry. He says this, sorcery. One translation says this is witchcraft. We, we get that word pharmakia from this word, sorcery, which is what we would call 
We know what pharmakia is, right? It's from the, Greek, from the word pharmacy, drug addiction. When you are living according to the flesh, you're going to dabble into drugs. Okay? Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. See, some of your marriages, the reason why you can't get along and you're angry at each other is because you're not living by the Spirit. Because if the husband and wife are walking in the spirit, you're not going to have outbursts of anger at each other. Disputes, ascensions, factions. And then he would go on to say this, envies, drunkenness, carousing. And he's talking about those that practice these such things. He says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is your lifestyle here, don't tell people you're going to heaven. I'm not saying a Christian may not ever stumble. Absolutely. But if this is what is characterized by your life, you better check yourself and see if you're really saved or not. Because when you are relying on him, you're going to practice love, you can find this a couple of verses. Next verse, I think. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Listen, these people talking about how filled they are with the Spirit and they mean as a snake. You ain't filled with the Spirit. You're not. Meanness is not a gift of the Spirit. It just is not. Neither is being impatient. Neither is not showing love for people. Neither is not showing joy and having joy in the midst of your circumstances. Goodness. Faithfulness. Hmm. Hmm. Faithfulness. Let me be like a dentist here and put on my dental smock and I'm going to drill a little bit right here. These people that come in, they blow in, they blow up, and then they blow out. You don't impress me. I don't care what you do. And we, we, me and my wife, we were at a restaurant the other day, and there was a, there was, careful. There was a person there at the restaurant. They were, they were just talking about how they do all this stuff. They were talking loud too, so everybody could hear them. When I do, when I pray for this piece, when I do, I, 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 I wanted to, yeah. There you go, Asher. I wanted to. Literally, just regurgitate my food. Because you, listen, if you're spirit-filled, you're not out there promoting yourself. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just laying my cards on the table, okay? I'm just saying a lot of people have associated shallow stuff for spiritual things. And sometimes... Most of the noise is coming from the shallow end of the pool. 
See, when you are spirit-filled, you're going to love people that don't love you back. You're going to have joy regardless of your circumstances. You're not going to be all depressed all the time. You're going to have a joy that surpasses all understanding. See, the disciples, they would get beaten and they would walk out of that place going, Hallelujah, praise be unto God. We got joy because we were beaten in the name of Jesus Christ. You're going to have peace in your life. You're going to have peace in your home. You're going to have patience. You're going to be patient. You're going to be kind of, you're not going to snap on people. You're going to be gentle, goodness, faithfulness. You're going to be meek. Not promoting yourself. And I got a problem with these mega churches that all they do is promote their church name and not Jesus Christ. They're trying to promote their ministry and not Jesus. And you're also going to have self control. Now, I may need to repent today because I didn't have much self control. I said some things I probably shouldn't have said. But when you are filled with the Spirit, it's going to make a difference in your life. Let me make one more, one more scripture, okay? Ephesians 5, 18. Apostle Paul says this, Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is a command here. Do you realize in the Acts chapter 2, verse 4, on the day of Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance. You would think, well, hey, that's it. That's good. Do you realize two chapters over in Acts chapter 4, you know what's happening? There's persecution that's come upon the church. They're being imprisoned. They're being beaten. And the Bible says this, that when they got to a place, they prayed with each other. and says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now let me ask you this question. No, and I'm not, this is a rhetorical question. What happened from Acts 2 to Acts chapter 4? What happened? i tell you what happened. They began to rely on themselves. They got their eyes off Jesus and were looking at their own problems. And what they needed to do, the Holy Spirit didn't leave them. They just didn't recognize. They were ignoring him. They were grieving him. They were quenching him. He was still there. They just had to become more aware of his presence that was there with them. And once they became filled again, aware of his presence, the Bible says they went out and they spoke to God, spoke the word of God with courage, with courage and, and boldness. What well, did it change there? Well, guess what? Acts 13, same thing happens. They're being persecuted. They're being put in prison. And guess what happens? Again, they got their eyes off Jesus and they began to rely on themselves. And so because of that, they got, they got discouraged, they got depressed. The Bible says they got together again, they prayed, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I'm here to tell you, every day of your life, you need to wake up and recognize his presence and rely on it every single day. 